Welcome back to another episode of Conversations. I'm David Cameron, the Executive Vice President of Personal and Business Banking here at City National. I'm thrilled to be joined by Janet Liriano, CEO and co-founder of Inaru, a truly innovative company that is reimagining the cocoa supply chain through profit sharing. Named by Forbes in 2019 as one of the top 30 under 30 in manufacturing and industry, Janet has over a decade of success scaling innovative brands. Liriano is named in six patents and is a founding member of the United Nations Decade of Women Initiative. She is a business leader with a passion for synergy in art, nature, technology, and her compassionate leadership centers on transforming businesses for the better. Welcome, Janet. Great to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I'm so excited to be here. Janet, I'm excited too to dive into your journey as the founder of Inaru. But before we do, I'd love to hear about the experiences that led you to become an entrepreneur, something close to my heart. I see your background includes working in the medical technology field, and you're a formally trained audio engineer and master electrician with several patents to your name. Tell us more about your background in those early days and the dreams you developed early. Wow. You know, it feels like uh, 10 eternities ago, but um, I think that probably the first thing is that I'm definitely a New Yorker and New York is such a multi-hyphenate place. Um, I'm born and raised in Queens. I went to a specialized high school, LaGuardia Arts, which many people know for their more famous alumni in acting and music, but they also have a seldom spoken of technical theater department, which is, you know, all of the technical work that makes show business happen, the scenic design, the lighting design, the costume design, the audio engineering. So I spent, you know, and and I'm starting there because I really do think uh, techies or theater kids could probably run the world that they so chose because the skills that you need to you know, have the show go on are just so closely related to the skills that you use as an entrepreneur. So I didn't know it then, but I would probably say that 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 education at LaGuardia, you know, managing all these different stakeholders, actors, designers, directors, the egos, the deadlines, the budgets, the timeline, and then obviously having a very technical approach to it because we're constructing worlds um, really influenced how I looked at problems, which is we can fix it. We can solve it. There's probably, there's probably a way we can do this if we think creatively. So probably an unusual place to start in my journey, but it was very formative for me to spend, you know, four hours a day as a young person managing so many different needs and, you know, trying to deliver something and unify those efforts towards one goal. So I'll pause there. And then you can talk about you know, master electrician work and all that. But that was really probably the genesis of of, of how I move through the world. You, you think that with entertainment or putting on a show that it's, you know, you're you're acting and it's so scripted, but at the same time, you're always problem solving, I, I'd imagine too. And were you one of those kids who loved to do puzzles or build Legos just because you had that affinity to engineering? Oh, that's a that's a great question. So my dad, um, both of my parents were born and raised in the Dominican Republic, and they moved to the U.S. right before I was born. But my dad in the DR was an engineer, and here, you know, 
that, that that love never ends, even if, you know, his education didn't exactly transfer when he moved here. So I would like work with him on fixing cars. He would have me just hang out with him when we were building things for the house. Um, my mother always encouraged me to pursue my technical interest. I didn't grow up in a home that said that that wasn't for me to do because I was a woman or it was very encouraging in that sense. So yes, I always wanted Legos, telescopes, or tools. That was like a constantly requested thing for me as a kid is I want this tool so I can make this thing. Um, so being a techie was kind of like a natural consequence for me. And then I went to college for that as well, lighting design. And then, um, you know, dropped out of school due to some family circumstances that really required me coming back home and helping my folks. They had gotten into a car accident. They're fine now, but chose to come home and work. And that's actually where the transition to being an entrepreneur really happened. I worked at a hotel as a concierge, so handling all these personalities and people, taking night classes, going to meetups, and then I found this world of entrepreneurship in doing that. And, um, you know, it was it was an unexpected shift from working in hospitality and thinking like, well, I guess the dreams of being in theater and making magic in that way are long past. And um, started working for another startup that the textile circuitry company, um, where I was applying a lot of my, you know, electronics, technical expertise and understanding to a very different field. So I like to tell people that everything you do is useful. You have no idea how it's going to connect to what you might do later. Right. I, I mean, one of the most enjoyable experiences that that I have as a banker is working with entrepreneurs and hearing the stories of the entrepreneurs, it's just fascinating. Um, to your point, there's every experience is part of that journey that I think results in entrepreneurship. If we can pivot and, and talk about Inaru sure. and the journey of founding Inaru, I'm a father of three boys. Um, two of them are under the age of, of 10 and then a 13. And as a parent, I love seeing when they interact and you just dream that they're going to be close when they become adults. And obviously you're close to your sister and, and went on the journey of founding Anaru together. What inspired the two of you to work together and really start that journey together? Ah, Erica, my better half, maybe. Um, so we are not twins. If anybody has seen photos of us, we are, I'm the older sister. Um, well, Erica and I have been close from a young age. We also went to all the same schools and we worked together actually in, in most of my previous entrepreneurial ventures. We've always worked together. We have the same hobbies. We love to dance. But I think the reason we knew we could build Inaru together is we have a deep appreciation for our differences as people and the strengths that those differences bring. Erica and I like to say that she's the inside guy and I'm the outside guy. Um, or, you know, she's very operational, product focused, risk mitigator detailed. I'm very much opportunity, um, you know, growth-minded, strategic, probably highly extroverted. I probably exhaust the poor girl. But when you put those two temperaments together, you know, you have a very well-rounded approach to, to doing things. And we've always, because we're also close in age, there's a three-year age difference between us. Um, it wasn't always easy, but I think we looked at the opportunity to build something together in our country, like our home country, something that our, our father has always dreamed of us doing and said, who better to do it with than someone who shares your values? So it's not that it's always rainbows and butterflies, because it isn't. And when you're such different people, 
sometimes those differences make it very difficult to come to a decision because you're optimizing for different things. I'm optimizing for opportunity and growth. She's optimizing for risk. And it can get very intense when it's like, who's going to quote unquote win here. But I think the thing that fundamentally makes it positive is that we know we're on the same team aiming for the same thing. And it's easier to put our egos aside when we have to make those tough calls. So I'm very lucky to be building a business with her. She's amazing. She's not on this podcast because she's in the factory right now. So, you know, she's she's doing the inside guy thing. Just incredible that the two of you created that balance and then recognized that you balanced one another, you know, the yin and the yang, so to speak. Um, fascinating. Was there a an aha moment that motivated the two of you to pivot and what was the origin of the idea to bring a Naru or found a Naru? So, you know, my parents from when we were young were always very clear that they didn't leave the Dominican Republic because it was this horrible place that was so poor and there was no opportunity there. You know, they left because they wanted us to have a really good education. And their, you know, secret dream was that we'd leverage everything that we learned and would want to go back and add value. And, you know, that what was really missing in the Dominican Republic was entrepreneurs, people that could see the potential of the place, of the people, and want to invest in it. And at the time, about four years ago, I was working at a biopharma. Erica was working in venture. My dad approached us and, you know, basically said, so when are you going to be successful enough to do what you really want to do? And it was a very confrontational conversation that I wasn't expecting on like a Tuesday. It was just like, you know, I'm curious, you guys. I see you stressed and working all the time. When are you going to be successful enough to, you know, bring all of your genius to what you really want to do? And that what you really want to do is, Erica and I had always thought about building a business in the DR. We've been helping my father with his cocoa farm for a while now, probably 10 years. And we've always talked about, well, you know, one day we'd love to build like a chocolate factory in the DR and see if we can't like make cocoa more valuable. And it was always this like lofty dream for some future day. And with that challenge from our father, we kind of had to look at each other like, well, I don't know how we answer that. When are we successful enough? And with that challenge, Erica spent three months in the DR like, you know what, let me see what's really here and analyzed what was going on with the supply chain. And she came back and said, hey, I think we could do something together here. I don't know what the business model is going to be, but there's a lot of value that's being lost. And, you know, with what we both know how to do, like, let's, you know, she kind of came back and challenged me further and said, we can do something here. So really, the aha moment was my dad calling us out, (laughs) to tell you the truth. Um, But I'm glad that he did, because now, you know, we get to be Wilhelmina Wonka making chocolate, profit sharing with amazing farmers. So thanks, dad. Yeah, great story. Gives me hope as a as a father. Maybe I'll one day be able to challenge my, my boys uh, similarly. I, it's interesting because entrepreneurs can have a great idea, but the ability to bring it to market is unique and can really be the determinant as to whether the company is going to be successful. Given your history of consistently improving systems throughout your career, can you explain how you're applying this expertise to build a better supply chain and business model through Inaru? Sure. Um, And I'd love to go like a level deeper with that question. And, 
you know, because I have this technical background and thinking and an engineer's mind in some ways, I look at the world very much as it's energy flow, right? It's there's friction and there's flow and there's tension and there's, you know, the release of that tension. And we look at the economy, it's an exchange of energy and we can call that money. We can call that cacao. We can call that people, but it's really about the movement of resources and the movement of value. So when we, you know, kind of taking this electronic, you know, switchboard thinking into where is power, value, resources being consolidated and what is the positive impact of that and what is the negative? You know, anywhere there is a anywhere there's a stockpiling of energy creates lack somewhere else. These are just natural principles, electronic principles, you know, and when we were looking at the supply chain, we kind of took a we took a naturalistic approach and also this kind of engineering approach of what's really going on here. When I was working with my sister to build this business model, what we quickly determined was, well, the DR Ecuador produces the like vast majority of organic cacao worldwide, and it's leaving as $200 million worth of beans in the DR. And then it becomes $12 billion worth of chocolate products in processor countries, which you know include Europe, the US, South Asia, um, Southeast Asia, I should say. And what's really creating that massive change in value is this added value of processing and a brand is what's, you know, really creating a lot of economic power for this product in these places. And we thought, well, if we have this wonderful raw material and all of the risk is being borne by the country of origin, the farmers, how can we restore some of that value so that we can balance better? Because where there's economic leakage, basically the theory at Inaru is, if there's economic leakage, there's environmental leakage, there's educational leakage. Anywhere you see an over-extraction, it's not just money and value, it's talent, it's environmental support, it's all, it ladders down in all of these ways. And, you know, the, the fulcrum or the key place to create more energy is kind of how we saw it is, well, why don't we build a factory and and do something different than most processors, which is profit share off of that outsized margin. So instead of $4,000 a ton, it's $50,000 a ton on the same weight of cocoa. And why don't we restore some of that value back to the farmers, restore some of that value back to the land and not position ourselves competitively with processor countries like Europe, because they can buy our semi-finished goods as well. Like how do we, how do we put ourselves in a restorative place was kind of the ethical challenge in our work. And, you know, that's, that's how we approached it. It sounds kind of meta, but uh, I think that those are, for me, that those are the fun ways to solve problems. Well, I mean, you, two great points that I picked up there. One, it's much more than just chocolate, right? It's a, it's a business, but the impact that you're having on people, on the environment, on the economy is profound. And I think the second point is when when people have a vested interest, right, they become educated, they do a better job, they have a greater impact on more than just their specific role. They want to share then and expand their influence, educate others and communities prosper. So can you touch on the relationship between the cacao farmers and the chocolate they produce, given that you have this profit sharing model that you've created? 
Sure. Um, something that will surprise many people is that most cacao farmers in the world, I think it's like over 70%, have never tasted chocolate. So they don't even know what this valuable product that they grow tastes like, what it's for. So, you know, there's multiple levels of impact. And obviously the financial is one we're very proud of, but probably the most meaningful moment for me in, in our business was bringing bars that we made in the country, we packaged in the country from these farmers back to the farmers and having them taste what they grew. So, you know, of course, the financial benefit of the profit shares that we we distribute means a lot for their pockets, but for them to understand that their labor creates this beauty and really connect it for them, the value of what they do was really powerful for me. I, I will speak for Eric and say, I know that it was powerful for her. And it's not just cacao, all commodity growers, you know, we have a, we have a inefficient economic model that says the commodity price has to be as low as possible because of all of the added value steps that come after. But what we're not appreciating is, is those growers are the most vulnerable. It's the most labor, the most risk with all the climate change that's happening, you know, the cost of labor, water scarcity, we're asking, and a lot of people don't know this, but the true price of cocoa hasn't really gone up in 15 years if you're counting for inflation and all these other things. So you have a product that has increased demand. You have a product that has increased labor, increased risk, but there's not an increase in value for the, the worker of that cacao. And you think of a vineyard owner, I say this all the time, I've never met a poor vineyard owner in my life. And the reason that they're not in poverty is that there's a direct relationship between their labor and the finished product. Most vineyard owners have some sort of take on the wine. So we're, we're actually using pre-existing business principles that succeed in other agro economies. And we're saying, if there could be thousands of wine companies that are all very profitable, why can't we expand that success in other commodities in a similar way? Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I'm sure you've seen the impact on the farmers in these communities. Can you maybe share an example or touch on how you've seen the change in the farmers' lives? Yes, I think that, you know, one of my, one of the things that I tell people is that, you know, change is, is really, we, we talk about exponentials and from a money perspective, but it's really incremental. You have to water plants every day to see it grow. And when I think of Inaru, Probably the most meaningful change is the shift from cynicism and mistrust over the last four years to enthusiasm and investment within our farmer communities. And then we can talk about some material changes on their farms and, you know, having young people want to go back to cocoa farming is probably one of the things that I'm most excited about. Like our Instagram has so many people that message us like, how do I work for you? How do I grow cacao on my farm? Like, this is amazing. But it was a four-year journey because so many promises have been made in these commodity-rich countries of, we're going to pay you more, we're going to do this thing, and best intentions, but execution to what you said earlier, people underestimate the complexity of these supply chains and how much loss is in there. Um, so I think probably my proudest moment, back to giving those farmers chocolate, is you know proving to folks that, you know, keeping your word matters and that they matter. And as we succeed, we're not going to forget you. There was a lot of cynicism the first two years. Like, okay, kids, we're going to let you pay more for this cacao, but we're going to see if you're really going to profit share. And we're going to see who you're really going to be. 
And that was tough. It was really tough to be promising this business model without having it exist already. So just like the emotional change within our community has been very profound and seeing the hope and excitement and seeing them invest in their organic practices and want to do more. Um, I think that that's really meaningful. Um, those are the things that I, I, I weigh the most. Yeah, I'm sure you have countless stories of how you converted skeptics to believers Seriously. and then where their lives have changed, right? That's that's incredible. Speaking of, of family and, and lives changing, your parents emigrated to the U.S. in pursuit of a better life. And now you're partnering with a prominent Dominican family, the Leon Jimenez family. Could you share with us the significance of this partnership and how it felt to work with a family synonymous with the Dominican Republic's heritage and legacy? Yes. Wow. I really appreciate this question. So here's the thing for like shooting for the stars, kind of. When I moved to the DR, I remember saying, wow, it would be a dream to work with this family. We didn't know them. For everybody listening, let me tell you something. I'm a girl from Queens. We didn't know anybody in the Dominican Republic except my dad and his, you know, group of cocoa friends. Like, that was it. No, no privileged connections in the region. But we, you know, in the Dominican Republic, they're very beloved. If anyone's ever been there and had a Presidente beer, you will then know this family because they own the Cerveceria Nacional, like the... The, the national beer, the largest exporter of cigars in the DR, La Aurora Cigars is in their, you know, portfolio of brands and prominent family for hundreds of years. And the thing that I really admire about them is how loved they are by the people in the country because they invest so heavily in education. They pay their 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 employees well. They're really committed to growing the nation alongside of their economic success. So it was always a dream for me to work with people like that who have seen the country change over hundreds of years and have navigated those changes with such grace. So through like an insistence of, does anybody know these people? We were eventually connected and introduced last year. And what was striking for me was how entrepreneurial they still are. You know, the entire family, all of their employees, their leadership, and how how much respect they treated our small business when they were considering partnering and investing and really understanding, you know, who we were as people and what our values were. It was a lot less about how much money could they make. It was a lot more about why are you really doing this? What is this for? You know, how is this really going to help the farmer in the DR? How could this help others in other countries? And, you know, it was a dream of a lifetime for them to decide to invest. And I think it's a full circle moment for me and for my sister my parents left this country to find opportunity elsewhere. We returned to the DR and, you know, the most random people you could probably find and are now partnered with these incredible people to create what's hopefully, you know, a new generational cycle of wealth, not just for us, but for the nation at large. And I think it's a cool way of marrying legacy and innovation and respecting what legacy can bring and respecting what innovation can do. So, it's kind of, you know, sometimes I'm still a little like, is this really in my inbox? Am I really working with these amazing humans? But, you know, it's kind of like, just go for it. If you really want to, if you really want something, just keep pushing. Eventually you'll get there. Yeah, it's um, it's almost as if the bigger the dream, the bigger the challenge. But 
with your engineering background, you were able to create these smaller dreams on this path and this journey to form this very formidable company. And if we can talk a little bit about overcoming challenges, we've talked to other guests about the challenges that women in particular and diverse founders face when trying to raise funding rounds. Can you speak a little to your experience going through the process and the moment when you received your first investment? You know, I think it's so interesting. Everything is perspective and data can be empowering or discouraging and it's really a personal choice. But it's one that we have to treat with compassion. So I say that because I think, you know, the numbers is like less than 0.05% of all capital, venture capital goes to women of color. You guys can't see me on this call, but I'm very visibly a Black woman with my curly hair. It's not a secret. Um, so, you know, when you look at that, like, wow, less than half a percent of all capital. And when it does go to folks who look like me, it's like the seed round investment is like 200K versus the 2 million that, you know, maybe more you know, traditional entrepreneurs and founders would receive. So, you know, when I was in fundraising for Inaru, thankfully it wasn't my first time fundraising. I had previously raised over a million for my first startup, um, the the textile circuitry company, and then co-raised again um, at the biopharma that I was at. But so then doing it again for Inaru was kind of the third time I was fundraising. But what I realized is people are not aware of the root of their resistance or discomfort. You know, when something is new, when someone is new, a lot of this stuff is very implicit. So when I was fundraising, I realized like the psychological barrier of somebody like me with a business this big, there's not a lot of examples of successful entrepreneurs that look like me. There's a lot of reasons for that, but functionally people trust what's familiar. So I'm already working against a very implicit bias that has logic. So instead of approaching folks who might have this unconscious uh, uh, resistance um, antagonistically, I just really leaned into the data and the patience of, I can understand that this seems weird, or I can understand, you know, that there might be other factors that are preventing you from wanting to invest. But let's sit with your rationale. You know, let's sit with the stage of investments that you do. Tell me exactly what would take you from this business is amazing, come back with more revenue, which is you telling me, come back to you when I'm more expensive. If you believe in the business and I've hit all of the milestones of what makes sense for a deal, what would really make you comfortable? Like, let's let's talk about it. And I, I really would approach these difficult conversations with a very friendly spirit of, we're both in it to succeed. You want to make amazing bets. I show up highly prepared. I have a data room for a Series B fundraise at a seed level because that's just what's needed. And let's 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 get you over the the discomfort of the unknown so that we can build something new together. And I've found that really leaning into my own sense of positivity and understanding other people's material is their material, and they're often unaware of it, made it so much easier for folks to come come along for the ride. So I think a lot of it is it's less about looking at, you know, impossible percentages and saying, I can't do this. It's so unfair. It's unfair to them, too. They're missing out on a lot of great deals. So I would approach it like, do you know that I'm trying to help you make money? <laughs> so let me help you get past what's a little challenging for you. And, you know, we have great investors as a result. So I just never I tried to not take it personally. Um, sometimes, of course, it's hard. But I just, I really like an impossible challenge. For me, it's fun. I'm like, okay, 
I'm going to do this thing that everybody's telling me I can't do. And I'm going to help people. My goal is that for the next round of investors or for the next entrepreneurs that are like me, I've I've like made it emotionally easier <laughs> for, for people. That's my goal. Well, I have this very strong feeling that, yes, clearly you defied the odds and secured funding. But the the strong feeling is that the path is going to get easier for others because you have charted the course. And I think you, know, you telling your story is going to give optimism to many others. And hearing you talk about the number of people who have been impacted by your approach to business is gives us all hope as as bankers that there's going to be more entrepreneurs that that we can support on their journey and obviously in business there's always competition but i know in talking to you you say that there's no such thing as as competition from your perspective can you share um that perspective with us cuz i think it's unique and fascinating um, I say this all the time and it confuses people deeply. I'm like, yeah, I don't compete with anybody. They're just a future collaborator. They don't know, but they're going to find out. So basically where competition is useful is internally, like personal best. Like I like our team to think of themselves as Olympians, right? We're all on a team. We're not competing to break the other team member. We're competing to collectively succeed. When we look at the market, anyone who sells chocolate or cocoa, I see them as an ally. We have the same vested interests. And the vested interest is we need cocoa. We ideally want happy farmers. We know that we have to take care of the land to have this yield. And I don't think that anybody's a cartoon villain. You know, we have systems that bring out exploitative tendencies, but you give someone the opportunity to succeed and do well versus succeed and just like hurt their own feelings with how they had to succeed, they're going to choose the feel good route if they see that it's viable. So as an example, one of our investors is the former, was a former um, C-suite executive at Hershey. People were like, how that, why would Hershey invest in, you know, why would a former Hershey exec invest in you? Like, well, actually Hershey suffers every time there's a farming crisis or a human rights crisis or a land crisis because they don't actually buy beans. They buy a semi-processed product and don't have the ability to really directly influence at the ground level in the way that Inaru is creating these new systems of management. So even at, even you know people we want to quote unquote paint as the bad guy, they're actually the victim of a system, a system that has no individual that controls it. They're participating in a system that hurts them as well. So I tend to approach our competitors with a, what is it about what I do that can serve your needs? And that's allowed us to align with very unusual people because I tend to take a service mindset of there's a place we align and I'm very interested in that. I'm not interested in where we don't align. Let's focus on the one place that we can leverage our resources to drive a common result. And it, our business model is inherently supportive because we're also B2B. So I can sell to many different types of buyers because a healthier cocoa industry is a healthier cocoa industry. So we positioned ourselves that way on purpose. Um, it's given us a lot of flexibility and allowed us to align with folks that others would kind of think is impossible for us to connect with. And the last thing I'd say, in terms of our team development, there's a, some, uh, an amazing chocolate brand um, that I'm going to call out here, Definite Chocolate in the Dominican Republic. Jens Kamen, um, the founder of this chocolate company, when we first came to the DR, we tasted this chocolate and we said, oh my God, this is some of the best chocolate we've ever had. I'd love to meet this guy. 
and through, you know, the magic of people and the universe and God and whatever you believe in, one of our farmers connected us to Jen's. We asked Jen's if we could collaborate on making our first run of bars. We had such a beautiful collaboration. And now Jen's is, you know, going to be Naru's director of operations at our plant. He still has his brand. We have our brand. Oh, someone you might think would never work with us because we're mutually aligned on values. He, we are so excited to see him grow as an individual and support his business. And he's so excited to help us grow. So I really do think it's about how you approach people. And I think most people would like to safely collaborate, but there's not enough opportunities to. That's so refreshing to hear you talk that way about being collaborative across the industry with what many would perceive as competitors. I love the collaborative culture that can be created as a result. And I'm certain that that collaborative culture is very prevalent at Inaru. Can you touch on how that same perspective about competition outside the company has influenced the company's culture of being collaborative? Yes. One thing I will say is like, I almost call it like a deconditioning process when anybody joins the company, because so many folks are used to, I think in some ways, Eric and I wanted to build the work culture we would have loved to have been a part of in other environments. So when folks join the team, it's kind of like, whoa, you know, this is a very different type of workflow. Um, You know, our performance reviews, you know, rank or rate people's performance against our values, which is love, dignity, artistry, grace, and stewardship. So those are the five pillars of Inaru. And it's like, well, how do you measure love? What does that mean? Well, we define what it means to be a loving contributor in the team. And here are the ways, right? If we disagree with someone, we're generous with our assumptions and we're curious about it, right? We're not combative about it. We say, can you explain this a bit more? I'm sure you have a good reason. You know, there's a there's a there's a language in Inaru that 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 is heavily in some ways trained into our team on how we approach conflict. So I think the deconditioning process can be really tough when new people come to the organization where they're kind of used to having to fight for their right to be heard. And I'm just like, hey, if you got a different point of view, we we don't you don't need a fight to to tell me, you know, we can just have a chat. So I think that that's probably the hardest part is like folks nervous systems calming down to just contribute and know that they're safe to do so. But it's probably the part of the business that I enjoy the most, which is kind of taking a coach approach to talent and help having people see like that they're safe to develop their strengths here and we're not going to pigeonhole them as they're developing. We have a very diverse team. We're like over 60% women. It's it's not because we want to reverse bias. It just happened to be that way. We have a lot of mothers on our team, which I love because we have a highly remote culture and a high trust culture. You do work whenever you need to do it. And as long as it's done by the deadline, it's really none of my business. So, you know, we're trying to, there's a lot of ex- social experiments at Inaru, but we're trying to show people that work is work is where humans go to add value. So how do you make this a healthy environment for that? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, we at City National feel the same way in really wanting to lead the industry and creating greater diversity in our workforce. And I think that then creates prioritization of ethnicity, profit sharing, and some of the things that you touched on. So you know, your vision of transforming the business landscape to prioritize ethical profit-sharing brands, aligning with the goal of achieving greater equity is a key priority for you. So how do you see that uh, coming to fruition? So one of the things I think that's a bit unusual 
is that we're very transparent with our quote unquote secret sauce, right? You know, the way that we're doing things, any in some ways, quote unquote, anybody could do it. I don't know if anybody could do it the, the, as well as we've done it, as fast as we've done it. But in theory, you know, go to a country of origin, spend the two years to build the relationships with the farmers, build a plant, build integrity into your business, profit share, create value to the marketplace. It's a repeatable playbook. And, you know, the, the, well, the clarion call I would send to the industry is if we want to create a stable cocoa industry, we're going to need a profit share. That's really where the value is. And it's the fastest way to secure your supply chain. That's my, my, my fundamental point is, you know, people say this a lot. It's like, oh, how do you inspire, encourage others in your industry to think about this is when, when they understand that 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 quote unquote profit sharing is not philanthropic. It's not a donation. It's a direct investment into the security of your business, into the security of your community, into the security of the communities that you rely on. When it's shifted into more of a stewardship and an investor perspective, it becomes very logical for people like, oh, wait, this makes sense. The problems I'm trying to solve for I actually have more direct control on impacting that problem instead of relying on all of these third parties and nonprofits and whatever, when I can directly manage that risk and manage that value. So by proving that it's financially viable at this scale, it kind of takes away the psychological barrier of, well, I don't know if it could work. That's really the purpose of, you know, the great experiment that is Inaru is to show that you can be a profitable business and a, and a purposeful business as well. You can do those two things. They're not in opposition, you know? Right. You're not just focused on the profit or the product. I loved how you talked about the energy flow and balancing that energy flow from the raw material all the way to the end consumer. Yeah. And if I could quickly add a metaphor, you know, I like to think of businesses like trees and, you know, people nobody thinks it's rational to not take care of the roots of a tree. How are you going to get fruit? The leaves are not more important just because they're visible and at the top. And the leaves are like brands and the roots are the farmers in the countries of origin. So we under like nature is the perfect model of how to live, because by the way, this is how we live. So when we think about what's wrong with the world is we haven't really honored the fact that we are also a part of a larger ecosystem and we need to be responsible with our give and take because it's what keeps us all healthy. It's about being respectful with what you give to the system and what you take from the system because it keeps you alive. It keeps you st stable. It keeps you healthy. And when we use that tree analogy, it becomes very obvious to brands that I'm only as strong as my roots. Yeah, it all starts with the foundation, right? Those strong, strong roots, good water, uh, healthy environment. So if we take a step back, I'm sure you have a big vision for Inaru, but what does the future look like for Inaru? What do you envision for the company? So, you know, to your point, the engineering mind, um, I'm really excited for 2024. For the listeners, please look out for all of the exciting products that we will have available. We're going to have some amazing sipping cacao, some amazing bars and bonbons. I'm excited to introduce our branded products and also support other chocolate industry members with our semi-finished goods, but really having people feel like, you know, when I buy something, it means something, kind of creating a consciousness around, we are participants in the global economy, geopolitical power. 
the things that we buy, the things that we consume, it moves worlds. It, it really does. So, you know, can chocolate change the world? I want to say yes. You know, we like to say internally we're the best chocolate for the world in terms of how we move. Um, so I'm excited to see Inaru in the wild more. When I think about the, you know, the 10-year plan, we, you know, we have real ambitions of scaling this model to other commodities. Like, why not do the same thing with avocados and avocado oil? How can we add value to other food producers in the same concept, right? Maybe Inaru's in Ecuador in the next five years. You know, like, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't want to say the sky's the limit, but wherever there's dirt, you know, we'd probably like to be. But in the immediate short term, I'm excited to like really deliver the final connection of this energy, having people eat things and enjoy things that they know has been good from the seed to the shelf is is always what I say is having that comfort in your purchase is something that I'm excited to to prove in the next year or so. So please look out for our products, everyone. They're tasty. Absolutely. I can't wait for it. And it it truly becomes an experience, right? When you know the story of Anaru and you're enjoying that chocolate, it's going to bring up those memories and those thoughts of the journey that you've been on and giving back to the farmers and communities. So looking forward to that nonetheless. When you think about the budding entrepreneurs out there, the advice for for those who want to take a, a entrepreneurial journey, what would you uh, recommend for them? So, what advice would you give those budding entrepreneurs who have the big idea but maybe aren't comfortable taking the risk at this point? I I'm going to say something wildly unpopular. Maybe there's like a prevailing thesis that to be an entrepreneur is to quote unquote move fast and break things. I really don't agree with this thesis, but, you know, respect everyone who's moved fast and broken things. I don't want to break things. So I would encourage entrepreneurs to be comfortable with moving deeply and building things. So take your time, right? Take your time to really understand who you are, what values you stand for, a problem that truly means something to you. Take the time to understand why it exists. I think oftentimes folks will approach an industry and say, I'm going to innovate without understanding why it exists. Why do these problems exist? Why do these opportunities exist? Be thorough in your understanding and be compassionate with your so-called competitors so that you can build something meaningful, whatever that may be. And the other part I would say is consistency beats talent 100% of the time. So the key thing here is, is not knowing that you can do it and having all these great ideas. It's you know, when the days are great and when the days are tough and when people are giving you a million yeses and 10,000 no's, you just have to keep plotting at it because, you know, I, I look to nature often, those trees take a beating and they still deliver apples every year. So you just need to plot along. It's not an overnight thing. Um, and if you approach it with that respect, I kind of feel like success is guaranteed. But first know what you really stand for. I think folks try to find it through their work. But I think it's important to know that before you begin. That's great advice. Everybody is moving so fast these days. And it's, I tell my kids, we talk about it in the office, you know, take your time, be prudent in your approach and take the consistent approach, like you said. Janet, it's been my absolute pleasure to host you on Conversations today. Congratulations on all the success. We look forward to watching all the future successes and we'll certainly eat more chocolate 
knowing that it's the best chocolate for the world. So thank you, Janet. Oh, thank you so much. Great speaking. Take care.